podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Friday. It is the 16th of February. Hope you're all well. It is. It's rotten out. Absolutely rotten. It's grey. There's misty old rain. It is just nasty. So we're staying inside all day. Uh, we had football last night, though, in the Europa League. Galatasaray 3, Sparta Prague 2. Kareem Demerbay, Dries Mertens, and Maro Icardi with the goals for Galatasaray, who made tough work of this. They went 1-0 up, and then Preisado equalized to make it 1-1. They went 2-1 up, and then Kukta equalized to make it 2-2. And then Icardi scored a very late goal to make it 3-2. Victor Nelson sent off for Galatasaray. Matej Rhines sent off for Sparta Prague. Shakhtar Donetsk 2, Marseille 2. Another odd game where Aubameyang scored on 64 to put Marseille 1-0 up. Mike Vienko equalizes four minutes later. Illiman and Jai puts Marseille 2-1 up on 90 minutes. And Shakhtar find an equalizer from Aguinaldo two minutes later to get a share of the spoils. Marseille will be heavy favourites to go through, given the second leg will be in Marseille. Feyenoord won, Roma won, uh, Piaxo with the opener for Feyenoord just in the stroke of half-time. Romelu Lukaku equalising on 67 minutes for Roma. Sporting won, sorry, Young Boys won Sporting 3, um, 
An Amenda own goal. A Jokerez penalty puts Sporting 2-0 up. Ugrinage pulled one back for young boys, but Inacio scored the third and final goal just after half time, and it was all very comfortable for Sporting. From there, Milan 3, Ren 0. Two goals from Ruben Loftus Cheek in that one. Uh, Rafael Liao with the third. Braga 2, Quarabeg 4. Jankanovic put Quarabeg 1 up. Banza equalised for Braga just before half time. But then in 15 minutes in the second half, Quarabeg put the game to bed. Zubir scores, Janinho scores, and Zubir scores again. Uh, João Matinho did pull one back for Braga in the 91st minute from the penalty spot, but it was too little too late. And Quarabeg in a great position ahead of the second leg. Benfica 2, Toulouse 1. Uh, Angel Di Maria scored a penalty on 68 minutes. Uh, Mikel Dessler equalised for Toulouse on 75. Moisa was sent off on 96. And Di Maria from the penalty spot on 98 minutes to give Benfica the win. That is a poor performance by Benfica because Toulouse are not good. Uh, Lens nil, Freiburg nil in the eighth and final game of the night. So, next week, Thursday night, the early kickoffs will be Milan-Ren. Milan look pretty safe and secure. Quarabeg-Braga, Quarabeg look pretty safe and secure. Toulouse-Benfica should be an interesting one. And Freiburg Lens should be an interesting one. Then in the later kickoffs, you have Sparta Prague against Galatasaray. That will be very, very interesting. Sporting will come through comfortably against young boys. But Marseille, Shakhtar, and Roma Feyenoord, both very, very interesting. So that's all well set up for next week's second leg. In the Conference League, Sturmgratz 4, Slovan Bratislava. One, I'm going to save myself the embarrassment of trying to pronounce some of these names. Um, but Sturmgratz scored on four minutes. Bratislava equalized on eight minutes. And then Sturmgratz decided to give them a bit of a spanking uh, and should should be comfortably through. Uh, Olympiakos won Ferenc Varos nil. El Kabi with the only goal of the game. That one's well set up for the second leg, which will be in Hungary. Molda 2, Legia Warsaw 3. Again, there'll be no pronunciations attempted here. Um, Molda were 3-0 up within 24 minutes. Uh, Legia scored two second-half goals to give themselves a really good chance of progressing because they looked dead and buried. Uh, Union St. Gillowat 2, Eintracht Frankfurt 2. Eintracht were 2-0 up. Within 10 minutes, uh, Sasa Kalasic with the second of the goals there. But Union fought back, got themselves level on 68, had a man sent off on 78, but managed to hold on for the draw. This one was mental. Ajax 2, Bodo glimpsed 2. Bodo went 2-0 up. Gronbeck with both goals. It was 2-0 until the 91st minute. When Bjortoft got sent off, Ajax got a penalty. Branko van den Boomen steps up. He scores. It's 91 minutes. And then Steven Berghaus equalized on 97 minutes. Uh, not a good showing for Ajax at all. And I'd imagine there'll be some questions to be answered after that performance. It is worth noting that Ajax signed the great Jordan Henderson haven't won any of the three games that he's played in but Al Etifak who got rid of Henderson played yesterday and they won for the first time in months in fact no I'm wrong they've won twice since he left they've won their two games one was a friendly one was a friendly will not get too excited about but they beat Al-Khalij, their first league win 
if I'm not mistaken, since like the 28th of October. Yeah. Their first win in domestic football since the 28th of October. They finally rid themselves of Henderson. And Ajax now can't win a game. So that's fun. It's great fun. Uh, Real Betis nil, Dinamo Zagreb one. Bruno Petkovic with the only goal of the game there. Servette nil, Ludogorets nil. And Maccabi Haifa one, Ghent nil. Uh, Franz de Franzdi, Franzdi, Perot. I uh, he got the only goal of the game. So Wednesday, Ghent will play Maccabi in the second leg, and then on Thursday we'll have the other seven second legs. And other than Slovan versus Sturm Graz, they're all really, really carefully balanced. You still wouldn't put it beyond Slovan to pull off something mental because it's the Europa Conference League. But you would hope, you would hope that Sturm Graz can see that one out. 4-1 up, you'd really hope that they can see that one out. Right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do a quick bit on Brighton, go to another break, and then we'll bring in Guy. But I feel like I, I really want to talk about Brighton today because I've seen a lot of disrespect towards the Zerbi. So I'm back after this. Right, welcome back. So before we get on to Brighton, a couple of bits of news to wrap up. Um, Manchester United have now officially approached Newcastle over Dan Ashworth. So negotiations will begin there and we'll see how that plays out. The expectation is that Ashworth will join Manchester United. Um, Not sure what the exact role will be, but I would bet that they'll hire someone alongside him to handle recruitment. Uh, Jason Wilcox has been mentioned. I'm not sure he's got the best track record, but, you know, that could be interesting. Um, West Brom are about to be taken over. Uh, Shilin Patel is set to become West Brom's new chairman after a deal to purchase an 87.8% stake in the championship club was agreed. So West Ham, West Brom finally have their new owners that they've been waiting on for quite a while. Now, we'll wait and see if this group that he is heading up have the right view of the club, the right vision for the club, the right plan for the club. West Brom are a club that belong in the Premier League, in my opinion. I I think they're a Premier League calibre club. They've got a great academy there. The stadium is always tremendous in terms of the atmosphere. It's a good fan base. And I really like the Black Country Derby, so I'd like to see that in the Premier League. Um, Huddersfield have a new manager. Andre Brettenreiter. He is a former Schalke and FC Stuttgart, uh, F- FC Stuttgart, FC Zurich manager. Um, don't know a whole lot about him now, if I'm being completely honest. Darren Moore was sacked at the end of January and they have decided to bring in this chap who, to be fair, has previously gotten promotion with Oh, he was the Paderborn manager. Okay. Got promotion with Paderborn and Hanover. Won a Swiss title with Zurich. Oh, oh, I do know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, he was the Hoffenheim manager last season. Um, and it didn't go well. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty good. Certainly has um, certainly has experience of getting teams promoted. Not the best track record, you know, but bigger clubs. You know, didn't go well with Schalke, didn't go well with Hoffenheim. But yeah, look, I mean, it's good to see them thinking outside the box here. Uh, what else do we have? The gossip. Oh, so, right. 
Looks like Roy Hodgson has been removed as Crystal Palace manager. Now, they're delaying, obviously, any kind of announcement on this because Roy is in the hospital. My guess is that it will be presented as Roy has decided to step down. The info is that Roy was told he was being replaced. And Oliver Glasner, uh, formerly of Wolfsburg, where he did a tremendous job and got them into the Champions League. And Eintracht Frankfurt, where, again, he did an outstanding job and won the Europa League. Um, it looks like he's the man who's who's taking over. Now, the names that were linked prior to this, obviously, were... Steve Cooper and Graham Potter, I think they've gone above and beyond here. I genuinely do. I think they've done a brilliant job getting this guy in. Now, the only thing I would say is, if things aren't the way he wants them, he won't stick around. Like, he got Wolfsburg into the Champions League and then left and took a job with a club who finished below them. Won the Europa League in his first year there. Last year didn't go great, admittedly, but he dealt with a lot of injuries, and he just decided to leave at the end of the season. He had a year left in his contract, didn't care, just decided to step, step down and look for the next challenge, and the next challenge is... Crystal Palace is taking over at an awkward time where Elise, Eze, Dekure and Gwehi are all out. But I think he's an excellent manager. Um, speaking of excellent managers, Roberto De Zerbi, who's been linked with Liverpool, who obviously will be losing Jurgen Klopp at the end of the season. And I keep seeing people say, oh, well, he had the great year last year, but this year has been a disaster. And I'm like, do you understand what football club he's managing? Brighton and Hove Albion are ninth in the Premier League. They're in the fifth round of the FA Cup and the round of 16 in the Europa League, having topped a very difficult group. I'm going to need someone to explain to me how this isn't a a really good season for Brighton. See, last season they finished sixth. And that reset the expectations of that club. But if we go back before that, well, under Graham Potter, they finished ninth, were out of the FA Cup in the fourth round, and that was with no European football. The season before that, under Potter, they finished 16th. The season before that, under Potter, 15th. The year before that, under Chris Hutton, they finished 17th. The year before that, they were 15th. The year before that, they were in the championship. I I don't understand how there's any criticism of De Zerbi. Yes, there are things he does that are very questionable. The situation with the goalkeepers the insistence on playing dross that are well past their best. But at the end of the day, they're ninth in the Premier League. They're ahead of Chelsea. They're one point behind Newcastle and West Ham. They have the 16th highest wage bill in the league. The 16th highest. And yet they're way outperforming that by being in the top half of the league. Last season, they had the 17th highest. And what's notable is how quick people are to overlook the fact that Moises Caicedo left in the summer, Alexis McAllister left in the summer, and Levi Colwell went back to Chelsea in the summer after his loan expired. That's three starters. That's three of the best players that Brighton had last year who've left, including 
the midfield partnership that was so vital. Now, the recruitment in the summer, a little bit hit and miss without question. João Pedro, fantastic. Mahmoud Dahoud did not work out there for whatever reason, but he was very much a Deserby signing. James Milner has been dreadful because he can't play football anymore at this level. Bart Verbruggen has been really promising. It's on Deserby that he's not getting the opportunities. It's on Deserby that Milner has played far too much. If you use Milner in the right way, you can probably eke out enough over the course of the season to warrant having him there. The way they've used him, no. Uh, Igor Julio, that one hasn't really worked all that well. He's been very hit and miss. Uh, Noella Tom, we've not seen. Carlos Beliba is a young midfielder who hasn't fully gotten the trust of his manager yet. But I've been pretty impressed when I've seen him play. Uh, Valentin Barco was signed in January, as were a couple of young players, uh, Stephen Hall, Kamari Doyle, Josh Robertson, and Kalen Vickers. But they didn't address right back in the summer, which they needed to. I don't think they addressed centre-back the right way. I know what they were looking for with Julio. He does have statistically a lot of similarities to Levi Colwell. They left themselves short in midfield. But at the same time, the biggest factor for them this year has been the injuries. I mean, they've been absolutely decimated with injuries. Now, forgetting the goalkeeper situation, that's on the manager, the fact that neither of them have started more than 14 games. But let's look at the defence. If Stupinen has missed half the season, Half the season. Lewis Dunk has missed four games. Joel Veltman has only started nine games. Igor Julio has started 13. He missed probably six or seven. The others he just wasn't selected for. Tariq Lamptey's missed a bunch of time. In midfield, Solly March has missed 17 games. Matoma has been out since the turn of the year, as has Adingra. Ansu Fatty's missed a bunch of time as well. Now Jack Hinchelwood apparently has a broken foot. He's going to be out for a bunch of time. They, and Julio Enciso, made two appearances. He's missed 22 games. He would absolutely be a regular for them. That's a lot of important players to be missing a lot of games. And they're still ninth. And I said this on a Daily Red uh, a few weeks ago. If you took Alison Becker, Virgil van Dijk and Ibrahima Kanate and just transplanted them into the current Brighton team, where does that Brighton team finish? And I put it out on Twitter and most people agreed they'd be a top four team. That's with just them. Just those three. Then add in Trent, add in McAllister, add in Zabozlai, add in Salah. All of a sudden, that's a hell of a team. Allison, Trent, Ibu, Virgil, Estupinen, McAllister, let's say Beliba, Salah, Zabozlai. Matoma on the left and up front you will just go one of the Brighton strikers either either Evan Ferguson or Joe Pedro um, that's a hell of a team that team wins the league in my opinion under him I think he is the type of manager that can win the league I think the defensive side sorts itself out to a large degree when he gets better defenders and a better reliable goalkeeper. I think as well as that, if he was to take the Liverpool job, he would have senior players in Virgil, in Allison, in 
Mo Salah and not need to play an Adam Lallana, a Danny Welbeck, a James Milner. He wouldn't need to play those players. He'd have senior players that are genuinely world-class. I think he would be a success at Liverpool. He's not my first choice. He's not even one of my top three choices. But he's in my top five. And he's worth strong consideration. And the idea that this is a bad season by Brighton is simply nonsense. It's simply nonsense. Like, we're hearing what a great job Gary O'Neill is doing. And he is. We're hearing what a great job Iraola is doing. And he is. And yet Brighton are ahead of both of them with a lower wage bill than Wolves. So, and they're in Europe. So that can't be a bad job. That that can't be a bad season. It just can't. That makes no sense. When Graham Potter had them ninth, people were falling over themselves to talk him up. De Zerbi has Brighton ninth and in Europe and still in the FA Cup. And yet, this apparently is not a good season. It's really, really bizarre. Really bizarre. The way people have changed their expectations for Brighton. As if Brighton should be finishing in the top four with the 16th highest wage bill in the league. It's utter nonsense. We're going to jump through the gossip quickly. Victor Osman is among Paris Saint-Germain's leading candidates to replace Kylian Mbappe, who has told the French club he is leaving. Osman doesn't make much sense to me. They spent £160 million on Randall Colomouani and Goncalo Ramos. A much more sensible signing, for my, my bet, would be Raphael Liao. Go and get Raphael Liao. Play him off the left. You've got Dembele from the right. You'd have Muani or Ramos through the middle. That, to me, makes a lot more sense. Bayern Munich are increasingly likely to part ways with Thomas Tuchel and are set to rival Liverpool in trying to appoint Xabi Alonso. Former Germany and Bayern Munich manager Hansi Flick is on Barcelona's shortlist to replace Xavi. While, Bar- while Bayern will also consider the 58-year-old should they decide to sack Tuchel. Bayern should never have gotten rid of Hansi Flick in the first place. Um, it hasn't gone well for either party since they split. Arsenal target Pedro Neto could cost £60 million, with Wolves looking to bring in a club record fee. Uh, Oliver Glasner taking over a Palace. Brighton are braced for the potential departure of Roberto De Zerbi, with the Italian attracting interest from Liverpool and Manchester United. Barcelona and Spain midfielder Gavi is a summer target for Paris Saint-Germain. He's out with a torn ACL, so, you know. Barcelona want to bring in a left winger and are monitoring Gabriel Martinelli, Carol Matoma, Kvice Kvalachkelia, among others. Uh, they can't afford any of those players, so, you know. Arsenal value Bakayo Saka between 150 and 200 million. Not sure why anybody needed to know that. Arsenal and Chelsea are both keen on Mohamed Kudus. Chelsea have made an attempt to bring Sam Jewell, Brighton's head of recruitment, to Stamford Bridge. You can sign all the recruitment staff you want from Brighton. It's not actually going to make any difference. They won't help you without Star Lizard. Uh, Norwich City are interested in replacing David Wagner with Mikel Arteta's assistant, Carlos Cuesta, in the summer. Okay. Uh, Newcastle are confident they can demand a compensation fee of more than $10 million if Dan Ashworth leaves the club to join United. That would be, I believe, for him to join straight away and waive the, waive the gardening leave. Uh, United are also working on a deal to sign Jason Wilcox. Leeds manager Daniel Farke is in line to be offered an improved deal if he manages to get the Elland Road Club promoted. Well, that's obvious. That's not reporting. That's just stating the obvious. Uh, we'll go to a second break. When we come back, we've got Guy Drinkle. See you after this.
Right, welcome back. So, as always, on a Friday, we're joined by Guy Drinkle. How are you, sir? Uh, just crapped on me as I was walking back with a dog. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. That Two feet like away from the door. Sounds like you're having as good a day as me. Yeah. Um, to be fair, I've, I've had largely a good day. I'm just tired. Right, Guy, we have a full slate. Ten games beginning tomorrow, ending Monday night with a rather unappetizing affair. Uh, let's get into it. Yeah, that Monday night game is getting all the attention today. Uh, but we do kick off with a, a Klopp classic, a half twelve kickoff away in London. Because how how else would it be? Uh, we have Brentford hosting Liverpool, Dave. Uh, I think we say this every week when we talk about the three lads, uh, three teams top of the league. Just a game they simply have to win, and I'd, I'd say the same for Liverpool. But Brentford, not a full turnaround, but they are improving since Tony's got back. Mm. Yeah, so in the last six games, they've won two and lost four, but it's it's two and two in their last four games. Uh, their home form leaves a bit to be desired over the course of the season, but they have won one recent home game, two of the last six. Liverpool, on the other hand, have the best away form in the league over the last six games. Uh, four wins, one draw, one defeat. Over the last 10 games, Liverpool have the best form in the league with seven wins, two draws, one defeat. Ahead of City on goal difference there. And in the last six league games, Liverpool are second in the form table behind only Manchester City. Now, going into this one, Brentford, no Rico Henry, no Brian Mbomo, no Aaron Hickey, no Kevin Shade. Doubts over Johan Wiesa. And Frank Onyeka, they came back from AFCON with some knocks and obviously fatigue. And Josh De Silva obviously remains out. For Liverpool, no Joel Matip, no Trent Alexander-Arnold, no Dominic Sabozlai. But they do get Ibrahima Kanate back after suspension. Alison Becker, Joe Gomez, Mohamed Salah, Connor Bradley all return to the squad. So that's huge. Uh, they will have no Thiago Alcantara and no Stefan Besetic. So from a position only a few weeks ago where they had 9 and 10 on the absentee list, it's looking like only five for Liverpool. One of them is a kid in Besetic who likely wouldn't play a whole lot anyway. And the other is Joel Matip who is a backup centre-back. So Liverpool are in pretty good shape at the moment. Now, Liverpool have gone to the G-Tech Community Stadium twice since Brentford were promoted, and they haven't won there yet. A 3-3 draw the first year, a 3-1 defeat last year. They've not played well in either game. Uh, Ivan Tony battered them the first time, and Mbomo embarrassed them last time. So Liverpool do have some work together. They have work to do to improve on that. But like you said, they need the win here. I'm going to go for the win. I'm going to say Liverpool come away 3-2 winners. Yeah, should be an interesting game. It's just the half-12 thing. Sometimes make it a sluggish affair, but we will see. Uh, on to the 3 o'clock then, Dave. We have Burnley hosting Arsenal as the first one. Kind of, well, maybe not the same because it's a Brentford are better than Burnley, obviously, but Arsenal, just another game they have to win. Obviously, mm. build on the uh, big couple of results they've had in in, in recent weeks. Um, I suppose the only thing to discuss in terms of Arsenal is if overconfidence after battering West Ham last week, but I don't think Burnley are probably the best team to take advantage, if that, even if that were the case. No, exactly. I mean, Burnley are a fairly poor team, as shown by their league position. They did play really well in the first half at Anfield last weekend. Uh, But if you look at the form table over the last six away games, one win, two draws, three defeats. Uh, Overall, over the last 10 games, home and away, they are bottom of the form table with one win and three defeats. Whereas over the last 10 games, Arsenal are fourth in the form table and they're fourth in the away form table over their last six games. Arsenal have lost some some games you would have expected them to win in recent weeks. I'm thinking West Ham. I'm thinking Fulham. But obviously they gave um, they gave West Ham a hiding 
last time out and obviously were quite impressive against Liverpool before that. There's no real reason for Arsenal to fear much uh, in this game. If we look at the injuries, no Timber, he's been done all season. No Partey, unlikely to have Zinchenko. Emile Smith-Rowe was a doubt. Tommy Asu getting closer to returning. Fabio Vieira and Gabriel Jesus also doubts, but Jesus apparently is quite close to a return. For Burnley, no Nathan Redmond, no Lyle Foster, no Luca Koliashu, no Jordan Bayer and Charlie Taylor. They're hopeful he'll be back. No point in overthinking this. Arsenal are the better team. Arsenal go there in form, full of confidence. We'll go 3-0 to Arsenal. Yeah, probably not the most interesting game. Um, the factor here as well is mm. Arsenal are the best team in the league at, defend, at, at attacking set pieces. And Burnley, the goalkeeper is so poor on set pieces. Mm-hmm. I think there's at least two goals in set pieces alone for Arsenal here. Yeah, he's uh, one of those no-armed keepers. It's not great. Uh, next up, we have Fulham hosting Villa, Dave. Obviously, Villa, a strange club at the minute. Obviously, picking up some very key injuries, I Konza and um, Kamara adding to the, some of the woes they've already had. But the form's very strange. I mean, we always go on about their imperious home form, but they've lost the last two at home. Mm. Beat Sheffield United away, which, as they should... But drawing with Everton um, and just about beating Burnley, they're the last five in the Premier League. And Fulham are just kind of doing Fulham things. I mean, last five, one, two, drew two, lost one. It sounds all very Fulham to me. Um, I don't think it's the most interesting game. But again, if Villa want to get top four or even just keep the gap on United to mm. secure potentially top top five, which might get Champions League, but at the very keep Europa League, they need to win these games. They do. They need to be winning this type of game. Um, Fulham, obviously, are a very mixed bag. You look at their home form, they are fourth in the, in the form table at home. That's pretty good. And Villa have not been a great team away this season, but... Over the last six away games, largely because of the the little dip that Arsenal had and the inconsistencies of the likes of Spurs, Villa are actually third in the away form table, uh, three wins, two draws in their last six. But it's the injuries that are hurting Villa here. You've got no Bubakar Kamara, there's your best midfielder gone. Obviously, Buendia missing the whole season, Mings missing the whole season, John Duran out long term. They're not expecting him back till April. Uh, and Esri Conza and Diego Carlos both out until March. Now, with Carlos, they're saying it could be the end of March. So you've got Conza, Carlos, and Mings all missing. That's three of your centre backs. Which, Guy, I have bad news for you, buddy. Mm. It, it looks like we're getting Clement Langley, Pau Torres, double left footed centre back action from Villa in this one because there's no other option. Matty Cash is going to have to play right back. They don't really have anybody else. Um, and it's not a centre-back pairing that would fill you with confidence because Clement Langley is not very good. Fulham, though, I mean, if no Raul Jimenez out for six weeks, that's a blow. But they're expected to have everybody else back. Kenny Tete, Tolson, Bassi and Awobi all expected back, all expected to be available for selection. Fulham looked pretty good last weekend, it must be said, against Bournemouth. Um, Capitalised on flaws in the Bournemouth defence and maybe a little bit of softness in the Bournemouth defence. And I think they'll look to do the same here against Villa. So I'm, I'm going to go for the Fulham win. I'm going to go 2-1. Well, you can't be predicting two left-footed centre-backs to win a game of football. That's well, that's just, exactly So I was taking your feelings into account mm-hmm. here as well. We all remember Pau Torres and Laporte at the World Cup. It's disgusting, and they just got what they deserved. Um, next to probably, yeah, probably the most interesting three o'clock kick-off, and that's Newcastle hosting Bournemouth. If I remember correctly, this was the reverse fixture, which kind of kicked off the Iriola 
turnaround, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. Um, they'd obviously started really, really poorly, and you had the usual talking heads and, you know, boffins saying that they'd made a huge mistake and they needed to get rid of Irol and who was this fella? And they'd only won one of their first 11 games and he'd taken six points and he needed to go and the win was over Burnley and that's not really a win because it's Burnley. And then they beat Newcastle 2-0 and it, it, that is what started their good run. Now, they haven't won any of their last five in the league. They've only taken two points from the last five games, but... Spurs away, Liverpool, West Ham away. Up until Arsenal went to West Ham and hammered them, we would have counted West Ham away as a tough result. I would mark a drawing at home with Forrest as a bad result. Losing away to Fulham's not a a dreadful result. You're both in that mid-table mix. I mean, as we look at the table right now, Fulham are 12th, Bournemouth are 13th, so they went into the game the other way around. But you know, losing away to a team that's right next to you in the in the division is not a bad result. So for Bournemouth, they just need to start picking up points again. But this is going to be a tough game. Toon have been pretty good at home this year. In the last six, they've won three, drawn one and lost two, but they haven't actually won any of the last three at home. They'll want to rectify that and get themselves back on track. Uh, Bournemouth's away form is quite good, though. They're fifth in the away form table. Uh, Injury-wise, Bournemouth, no James Hill, no Philip Billing, no Tyler Adams. Uh, Ryan Fredericks and Max Ahrens both out. Romain Favre, he might be ready to make his debut, having been bought last summer, loaned and now brought back. The tune though, they've got loads of people out. Obviously, Tonali, Callum Wilson, he, he might not play again this season. Jolington might not play again this season. Nick Pope is still out for another couple of months. Elliot Anderson's out for another month. Matt Target's out for another month. Willock and Isak, they're saying it's probably a little bit too soon this weekend. Mm. So, I mean, no Wilson, no Isak, that's problematic. I think that's part of the issue, though. They keep getting these lads back, and they in, I know they instantly have to play, but but the but long they need term, to be... you, yeah, long term, you just need, don't yeah. <laughs> you need to get, give them a break, ease them in. A hundred percent, you need to be easing them in. Like ideally, when Isak comes back, you'd bring him off the bench for a couple of weeks, but if nobody else, mm. because Wilson's out, Jolington would be the other option you could throw up front. He's out. So when Isak comes back, they're probably going to have to rush him back in. Uh, it does look like Jacob Murphy might be okay to go this weekend. Um, so that would be a help. But it's a lot of issues for Toon. Bournemouth are going there with nothing to lose. Like, they look comfortable in mid-table. They're eight points clear of Everton. They'll go there knowing they can beat this Newcastle team, having already beaten them this season. Wouldn't be surprised if they pulled off the win, but I'm actually going to go for the draw here. I'll go 1-1. Yeah, quite an interesting game. Probably the one I'll watch um, at 3 o'clock. Albeit this next one, or next two, could be quite interesting as well, to be fair. Forest hosting West Ham, Dave. Forest, we kind of talked about. They are trying to set up some partnerships and stuff like that, but West Ham, I mean... Where are they sat in the league? Sat in eighth. No win in the last five. I'm not sure if it extends beyond that, but the Premier League site has it as the last five. Heavy defeats in the last two as well against team, well, Man United especially, who they should be competing against in mm. terms of league position. But draws with like Sheffield United is not, not good enough. It's even Bournemouth, you could say, is not good enough for a team challenging for Europe. And Brighton, nil-nil's fine. Um I mean, if they lose this, that's three losses on the bounce. Yeah. They're already reportedly paused contract talks with Moyes, haven't they? I'm yeah, not that's saying, I'm, that's I'm not saying get Yeah, I'm not saying they get instantly sacked, but the pressure had built because the reaction after that Arsenal game, and rightfully so, was massive. Yeah, the Arsenal performance was a disgrace. 
It was an absolute disgrace, and everybody involved should be ashamed of themselves. Um, what's weird is they're on this, like you said, this five-game run without a win. They'd won four or five in the previous five games. So they came into this run in good form, and they, they went to Old Trafford and won. No, they beat United, they beat United at, at West Ham. They went to Arsenal and won. And David Moyes looked like he'd figured some things out against the top clubs. And now they're a mess. In the form table over the last 10 games, they are sitting in 10th. But in the form table over the last six games, they're fit- sitting in 15th. Their away form has them in six, three wins in their last six away games, whereas Forest are bottom of the home form table. So for West Ham, this is an opportunity to pick up three points. This is a Forest team that look a little bit lost at the moment. They have no Chris Wood. They have no Gonzalo Montiel. We'll wait and see if Sanger is ready to go. Uh, probably more likely to be next weekend. Same with Ola Eina and Willie Bolly coming back off AFCON. For the Hammers, no Paqueta. Probably about a week away. But Edson Alvarez is back. Kurt Zuma is fit. Though he should not start after his performance this weekend. But the big one for them is that Mikel Antonio is back. So they do have a different option up front. So at least they can stop running Jared Bowen into the ground. Both sides need the win here for different reasons. Like Forrest need to start getting some sort of daylight between themselves and the bottom three. If they were to lose here, they risk a gap opening above them, which can be very tough to close. I'll go the draw. I don't really fancy either of these teams. I don't feel like either of these teams deserve to be picked as a winner. So we'll go the draw. We'll go we'll go 2-2 though. I do think it'll be fun and neither of these sides defends all that well. Yeah, definitely should be goals. Neither team do the defending, as you say. Um, you could probably say similar in this next game. I mean, Spurs, Wolves, I think both teams have good defenders, but they just don't seem to like defending. Um, obviously, we know Ange Ball's very risky, but Gary O'Neill's always seen, teams seem to always be in high-scoring games. Um, I like both teams' attacks as well, but I, mm. I just remembered Cunha's buggered, isn't he? So that doesn't help my argument here. Yeah, uh, he is, but, but at least Huang is back. Yeah. So they get one of them back. It's just a shame that it coincides with Cunha getting what is probably going to be a, a fairly long-term hamstring problem, which mm. might keep him out for a couple of months. Um, but he's the only one missing for Wolves. Tottenham, no Fraser Forster, it wouldn't matter. But no Adoji and no Pedro Poro, so both full-backs out, which means Emerson Royal. And I'm guessing Ben Davies. The backup centre-backs. <laughs> yeah, the backup centre-backs now getting to play as backup fullbacks because Ryan Sessegnon is is out. So he's not available to step in at left-back. That poor lad's missed most of the season. Uh, Giovanni Lo Celso should be back, but Manor Solomon is, is out and he's had to have another surgery on his knee, which, I mean... That poor lad, he's had so many, so much bad luck since moving to England. Came just to Fulham, did his meniscus, came back, looked great, joined Spurs, started okay, injured meniscus again, and now another. That's three knee surgeries in a season and a half. That's not great at all. Um, I'm going to back Spurs to win here. I think they're clearly the better team. Spurs obviously sit fourth in the table, whereas Wolves are down in 11th. Uh, Wolves did beat Spurs earlier in the season. That was around the time, I think it was the game after the Chelsea game where Madison and Van de Ven got hurt and Romero got sent off. And there's a whole mess for for Tottenham. Tottenham have basically, other than, other than the fullbacks, they have basically everybody else back now. So I'm going to back Spurs to win. I'll go 3-1. Yeah, it should be a fun game. Um, Half-five kickoff. then we have on, on Sky, obviously, Man City hosting Chelsea, Dave. Um, Chelsea do suit these types of games where they don't have to break teams down, obviously. 
But City have turned into post-January City or post-December yeah. City. Yeah. As they are wanted to do. Now, City's home form, a little bit hit and miss. Three wins, three draws in their last six, but they have won the last three. Uh, over the last 10 games, they've got the second best form in the league. Same outcomes as Liverpool. They just conceded three more goals. They have the best home, the best form in the last six games, though. They've won six in a row. So that's very promising for them. But Chelsea, over the last six games, have won four and lost two. Now, the two they lost, they got walloped in. They got absolutely embarrassed in both of them. But they are, they are showing some signs of life. Though their away form is pretty terrible. Only two wins in the last six against four defeats. Injury-wise, Chelsea, no Fafana, no James, no Badiashile, no Lavia, no Kukurea. Significant doubt over Thiago Silva, which is actually a boost for them. No Carney Chukwemeka, no Leslie Ogachukwu. But Robert Sanchez is back and Malo Gusto should be good to go. For City, uh, no Gvardiol, no Grealish. I felt a little bit bad for Grealish because obviously he hadn't been starting there was rumours that he stormed out of training, having been told he wouldn't be starting a game. Got a start in midweek and obviously had to go off early. Uh, no, well, Kovacic is back, though Bernardo Silva looks like he should be okay. And uh, Sergio Gomez won't won't play anyway, but he's back. So City are in pretty good nick. Gvardiol, I actually think not having him might help them because Pep will have to stop doing silly things. Um, though he'll probably find something silly to do, but just put Nathan Aki at left back and let it go. Um, City at home, City will win. City will win. We'll go. We'll go two one. I think it'll be tight, but I think City will win. Yeah, as I said on today, we're sure Rodri's fit. City will win. A hundred percent. City yeah. haven't lost with Rodri in the team in like a year and a half or something crazy. Like, it's just ludicrous how much difference he makes to them. So if you injure anyone, Chelsea, please. Um, no, that's harsh, but no, I'm only joking. Please do it. Pops him into a nice yellow card. Yeah. And then I think he only needs one more yellow card between now and the Liverpool game, and he would miss the Liverpool game. So that we, we'd, we'd take that. Yeah, and then get a red card, and then the yellow card doesn't count. So he has double jeopardy. So let's do that. Anyway, on to Sunday. Oh, God, what, a, what an awful day, couple of days of football. Uh, Sheffield United hosting Brighton, Dave. Uh, now, we mentioned Sheffield United kind of, well, negatively and deservedly negatively last weekend. Obviously, got the big win against yeah. Luton. Brighton do bottle games like these, or they used to. The issue here, well... Brighton's issue is that it's it's big, powerful, quick strikers that cause them trouble. Now, Sheffield United do not really possess one of them. Brighton Diaz is, is pretty big and pretty quick, but he does tend to play a little bit more with drawn forward blades. Ollie McBurney has no pace, but he is great in the air. Cameron Archer's lightning quick, but he's only about 5'8", so he's not going to hurt you in the air. But if Sheffield United decide to go direct, they are the type of team that Brighton have a habit of, of falling over against. Last 10 games in the form table, Brighton are 12th. Three wins, four draws, three defeats with a negative goal difference. That's not great. Um, last six, they've lost two, drawn two and won only two. Sheffield United obviously got the big win, but that was in the second win in their last 10. At home, Sheffield United, Sheffield United are the second-worst team in the league. Away, Brighton are the third-worst team in the league and haven't won any of their last six away games. So this this does not bode all that well for a good game. Uh, Brighton, no Solly March, no Hinchelwood, no Milner, no Enciso, but he's apparently, apparently, fingers crossed, he's expected back next weekend. Um, Noah Dingra. Oh, no, Dingra's back. Sorry, Dingra's back from AFCON. Uh, Joe Pedro, though, is out, which is a blow. Sheffield United. 
No Basham, no Egan, a doubt over McBurney, a significant doubt over Brierton Diaz. So this might be breaking in Brighton's favour. Uh, Hammer should be okay. Baldock is out. Gerbic is out, which is a blow because he's got to do the concussion protocol, which means we're back to Wes Fotheringham. Um, Norrington Davies is, it looks like he might be out for a while. He'd just come back. It's so harsh. He'd missed so much of the season. He's just come back and now he's looking like he's out another bunch of time with another muscle injury. And Daniel Jebison has obviously been out all season with an illness. We don't know what that illness is. We just have to hope there's nothing, uh, nothing life threatening. I'm just going to go for the Brighton win. I'll go. I'll go two one to Brighton. I don't expect a good game. Yeah, not great. Um, next up, Luton hosting United. Dave, obviously, Luton missed opportunity last weekend. Could have built a gap to the relegation zone. Um, United turn around. Uh, keeps continuing regardless mm. of performance, but getting results is kind of what Eric Ten Hag's done. He starts off yeah. brilliant seasons and just goes on a streak. Um, I think this game has the potential to be mental, but United should win, but I feel like there'll be a lot of goals in this. Yeah, me too. I mean, this carries on the trend of every Luton home game against the top six club being on TV just to see how they um, how the, the bigger club copes with Kenilworth Road. United, over the last 10 games, are seventh in the form table. But over the last six games, they're third in the form table. Uh, Luton, over the last six games, are eighth. And over the last 10, they're 14th. Luton's home form is a lot worse than we actually you, than you would think. Mm. There was this idea that the home form was really good, but they've actually lost four of their last six at home uh, to only two wins. United's away form isn't great. Two wins, a draw, and three defeats. But they have won the last two, and that was Molyneux and Villa Park, both of which have been tough places to go this season. Now, they were very fortunate to win both games. But this is what Ten Hag seems to do. He puts together these little runs. Um, United, no Lissandro Martinez, no Anthony Martial, no Terrell Malasia, no Mason Mount, no Aaron Wan-Bissaka, but Luke Shaw is expected to be fit. And for Luton, no Marvellous Nakamba, no Mads Anderson. Tom Lockyer, obviously, uh, probably not going to play again this season. Uh, Hashioko, the Japanese player they signed in January, he needs a couple more weeks, apparently, to be ready. I'm just going to pick United. I I don't want to. I want Luton to win this game just because I think it'd be funny to watch them. It would have been funnier if, if Martinez was playing and just watching them bombard him under the long ball. But I, I think United will have enough here. The forward line is really starting to hum. Um, if Rashford can catch a bit of form, because Garnacho's playing well, Bruno's playing well, and Hoysland is starting to really look the, look the part. If Rashford catches a bit of form, United are going to be formidable going forward. We will go 3-1 to United. Yep. Yep, wouldn't surprise me. Now, moving on to Monday, a genuine relegation six-pointer. This, this is what we strive for in football. These awful matches that are on Monday night football for some strange reason. Um... I mean, Dave, probably the best point to start with is the is the league table. Um, and then we'll move on to Crystal Palace's managerial situation as well. Um, if Everton win, they drag Palace right into the relegation scrap. But if Palace win, it's probably a big enough gap where they can just draw their way to safety. Um, it's a massive game, probably more so for Everton. Well, obviously, Palace probably coming into this game without a manager. I'm guessing Ray Lewington will cover if Roy's ill and on the verge of getting sacked. So it's a very strange situation. Yeah, it's a weird situation in that, according to certain people, uh, they've already agreed a deal with Oliver Glasner to take over. But they want to let Roy resign, retire, step aside, whatever. And obviously, the situation with Roy is that he remains in hospital and 
you know, he's undergoing tests, but he is stable. Um, but the latest is that they're waiting for him to be discharged. He'll do a press conference and say he's stepping aside and Glasner will step in and become the new manager, which is a really good appointment, but obviously irrelevant for this this weekend. Um, form-wise, Everton are 14th in the home form table over the last six games. Two wins, two draws, two defeats. Palace are second from bottom in the away form table with two draws and four defeats. Over the last 10 games, Everton are 13th in the form table. Three wins, three draws, four defeats. Palace are 19th. Two wins, two draws, six defeats. Over the last six games, though, Everton have not won a game. And Palace have won two, though both were at home. This is going to be an ugly game. No Arnett, Arnett and Juma. Uh, ben Godfrey should be okay. Decore is a doubt. Deli Ali is out and Andre Gomes is out. But it's grim for Palace. No Decore, uh, no Rob Holding. No Michael Elise, no Eberichi Eze, no Mark Wehi, no Will. Oh, well, Will Hughes is a doubt. And Jesserun Raksaki is, um, is out as well. If Palace were full strength, I'd actually back them to go and win, but they're not. So I'm actually going to back the Everton home win. We'll go 1 0 to the Ev. Yeah, no one's predicting more than one goal in this game. <laughs> we saw those FA Cup tie, lads. Jesus. Yeah. Christ. Yeah, exactly. They were grim, grim games of football. Yeah. And that's the last game, and might be that game might kill off the entire footballing industry. <laughs> well, Molly's having a conniption because she thinks she's going to have to watch it, but you don't have to watch it, Molly. It's fine, honestly. We won't watch that one. Um, yeah, so that's it. We will be back on Monday. Thank you, as always, to Guy. Thank you for listening, and uh, take care of yourselves. Enjoy the weekend. Podcast Network.